You're listening to the Mill Sunday School Podcast. Second Tim chapter three verse sixteen is like you have if you're if you're talking about the Bible you just have to read this verse because it has to do with the Bible and it's a really good verse so I'm going to read the read this verse and then continue on to chapter four. Did you know that chapters weren't added until like the 1200s and so Paul didn't write his letter to Timothy and add verses and chapters in it kind of profound. If you've never thought about that, you're like, yeah, I guess they were added in later. Because this is just a letter. Just a letter. It's a Bible, but it's a letter. Anyways, let's look at 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. It says, all scripture. Everybody say, all scripture. All scripture. <laughs> what a group today. Anyways, all scripture is God's breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And then it continues. The idea is still there about Scripture and studying Scripture and using Scripture. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing and his kingdom, I give you this charge. Preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, encourage with great patience and careful instruction. For the time will come when men will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead... To suit their own desires, they will gather around a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. Oftentimes, the the Bible challenges us. The Word of God challenges us. In verse 4, they will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. But you, keep your head in every situation. Endure hardship. Do the work of the evangelist and discharge all the duties for your ministry. Let's pray this morning. God, we do thank you for your word. As we study the Bible today, God, we ask you to open our hearts and our minds to receive your word, to understand who you are by studying this book that you've given to us, this book, your word to us, that we might know you better, we might understand you better. And so, Father, we thank you. We love you. We love the word. We are honored to be in here. And everybody screamed? Amen. Amen. Um, man, they got like a, a sale back there on bagels today or something. <laughs> Anyways, I walked up to the associate pastor's office, kind of upset, ready to, I'd already decided to quit the church, and I was just, as like one final slam, I was going to tell this associate pastor why I was leaving the church. Uh, this was quite a few years ago. This is when I was, I'd only been a Christian a few years I was a Christian noob, and um, I, was, I was ready to leave this church because I was no longer getting fed there. This church was a great church. When I first started going to it, um, this is way back in my, in my days as a Christian when I, I actually lived in Utah at the time, went to this great Baptist church, and for the first year that I was there, I was getting fed like crazy. You know, you know what the, if Christians use, I got fed there, they mean like I was learning and growing in my faith. And like every Sunday... The preacher would preach, and I would just be on every word. I'd be taking notes. I'd go home and then, like, expound upon every verse that he used and, like, cross-reference verses, and I just loved it. I was getting spiritually fed at this church for, like, a whole year. It was just, like, the best thing. I would show up at church ready to write down notes and ready to engage. And as I grew that year, as I learned about Scripture, in fact, that, that was the year that I first read the entire Bible. I read from Genesis to Revelation. It took like the whole summer. That's all I did was read. I learned a ton throughout this year that I was at this church. 
And so I came to a point where I wasn't learning as much anymore. Every new sermon that I heard, I was like, oh, he's, he's talking about King David. I had already read the story of King David. I know, where, I know where he's going with that. Yeah, David and Goliath. Yeah, I've heard that story before. Every Sunday wasn't this fresh new revelation like it once was. And so I wasn't really aware that it was probably me. It wasn't the church. It was me that was growing so much. And I didn't really see that at the time. And so I marched into this associate pastor's office. And he is a, he's a really good pastor, able to just, you know, diffuse the situation, able to see and have insight. Just a really cool guy. And it kind of reminded me, anybody a Lost fan? NBC Lost? Yes, me too. I'm re-watching all the seasons just to get ready for the new season that's coming out. Anyways, kind of like that. Um, so the pastor was a lot like the character John Locke, like full of faith, mysterious, able to have insight and show people things and ask penetrating questions like Socrates almost, ask questions and get the person to learn from the questions that are asked of them. And so this pastor, I'm sitting across from this pastor, just kind of told him, yeah, I'm, I'm moving on. I want to go to a different church because I'm no longer getting fed here at this church. He asked me some penetrating questions. He said, well, Joe, you, you, are, you are doing great here at this church. You are growing and learning. Is it true that you read the whole Bible this summer? I was like, yeah. He said, and he asked me the question, well, do you think it's, it's actually you that has grown so much and it hasn't been the preaching that has been watered down. Because I kind of accused the pastor of, yeah, wait, you know, a year ago he was preaching, you know, all this new stuff and this great stuff. And nowadays, I've, I've heard all this stuff before. It seems like he's watering it down. And this associate pastor, the guy that reminded me of John Locke, just, you know, asked me that question. Do you think it's me or do you think it's the sermons? Do you think it's actually the sermons or do you think it's me, how I've grown this year? And I'm, it's not new anymore because I've, I've learned it and I've grown so much. And it was a question that just penetrated me. And I thought, gosh, he's, he's right. It's, it's me. I've come to a place where I'm no longer getting fed at this church because I've in some ways grown and have learned beyond where the pastor is preaching and, and as far as like the levels of, you know, how in-depth he goes. And it was fascinating for me to realize that. And he's actually one of the first people that said, Joe, you, maybe you should lead a group. And so to, the long, uh, the short of the story is that I stayed at the church. I eventually led a small group because of his encouragement. And I think the Mill Sunday School, in some ways, like if you're the kind of person who's like, man, Joe, a year ago you were like preaching new messages every week and it was awesome and it was awesome and I was getting fed and now I'm no longer getting fed. Well, maybe it's time for you to to take another step. Maybe you've been discipled. That's the purpose of the Mill Sunday School, true discipleship. I, I know lots of churches have lots of different discipleship programs. Some are very organized and structured. Others uh, aren't as organized and structured. But if you ask the Mill, what is the Mill's discipleship program? We would say the Mill Sunday School. This is where people get discipled. And so that's what the Mill Sunday School is all about. We're going to take some steps today into studying hermeneutics. Um, all this month, the month of October, is the, the month we ta- we've taken the topic of hermeneutics. Hermeneutics means literally the study of the interpretation of the Bible. So it should be a really cool month. Did you know that there's only two Sundays this month of the Mill Sunday School? Because the Mill Fall Retreat. Yes! 
And so uh, two weekends, we will be up, I will be up at the Millfall Retreat. Both weekends are the same. You don't have to go to both. You can pick one to go to. Um, Although there's a lot of, I've heard from some people that are going to both, which is just pretty cool. So if you've never been to the Millfall Retreat, if you would say, eh, I'm kind of newish around here. I don't know anybody. The Millfall Retreat is the bomb diggity. You can quote me on that. It's really cool. We go up there. We go up into the mountains. We have services like, like we're having now. We do worship. Um, we have tons of free time, games. There's order to structures, ways to meet people. We have really good meals together. We sleep in really cool cabins. And um, so it's pretty cool. If you haven't thought about going yet, you should definitely go. Ask anybody that's gone. They'll tell you how cool it is. So the Millfall Retreat's coming up. That's why there's only two lessons. Today we're going to talk about um, what... How, basically, we're going to talk about two things. The Bible and why interpretation of the Bible is important. And then next week, we're going to engage those two things and say, okay, how do we do, you know, how do we use the Bible to grow? And so today's more of a foundational message. In some ways, it's going to be kind of a heady message, a nerdy message today. So often, I think we we pick up the Bible, we open it up, and we're like, okay, I'm I'm going to read this passage, God speak to me. Today, and that's great. Today, we're going to take a step back and say, okay, how, why do we need to interpret it? Well, how do we study it? You know, what's the deal with translations? We're going to spend some time today looking at different translations, which isn't, you know, it's, it's not a message you get, you know, as a sermon very often. It's, very, it's a very Sunday schoolish kind of message. And so, um, so the announcements, Millfall Retreat, sign up. The second announcement is if you're newish around here, we have uh, some cards. I believe they're on the tables or on the back table. It says uh, the Mill Sunday School First Timer card. Looks just like this. You could fill this out, bring it to the nice people in the back or myself, and I- I'll give you a CD. It's like a welcome CD. Thanks for coming. Uh, it tells a little bit about the mill, and especially on Friday nights. If you haven't been to the mill on Friday nights, um, it's pretty cool. So, are you ready to study the Bible? Me too. Let's, um, the Bible is 66 books. In fact, if you're taking notes, I'm surprised you didn't know this, but the word Bible actually means books. Did you know that? Maybe some of you did. That's all it means. I mean, the Bible is books. It's 66 of them. In fact, the New Testament is 27 books, 260 chapters. It's about roughly, I mean, every Bible is different because of the font, but it's about 300 pages. We're talking about a big book here. The Old Testament, 39 books, 929 chapters, 1,000 pages. And usually Bible pages are like extra thin. If they weren't extra thin, it would be like this big of a book. Like if it was a normal novel book in Bible form, or Bible in novel form, it would be like really thick. I mean, we're talking about lots of books, lots of different authors. And, and so let me just ask this question. How do we know the Bible's not just made up. Well, there's some reasons. I'm going to go into that for a second. But when I was in middle school, I made up something. (laughs) This is a real, I I was kind of, I wasn't like a bad kid. I was kind of a devious kid that usually didn't get caught. Um, But I I guess I was a bad kid, but I wasn't known as a bad kid because I usually wasn't caught. But um, me, there was this kid named John Mossy, and John Mossy liked this girl named uh, Michelle uh, Wolf in middle school. And Michelle Wolf was like the most popular, the, the most beautiful girl in the world, um, at least back then. Now my wife is, because I met her later. Anyways. Um, good save, thanks. Uh, so in middle school, Michelle Wolf, she's like the, the, the prettiest girl ever, and she's the most popular. And this kid, John Moss, he was like this 
this kid that he wasn't very cool. He was always bragging. He was kind of like the school bully and just like pushed people around. He was kind of mean and I didn't really like him very much. And he was always talking about how one day he's going to talk to, uh, what's her name? Mandy, Mandy Wolf. He's going to talk to her. Like some point she, and they're going to talk and they're going to fall in love. He's going on and on about this. And so me and another friend decided to play a joke on John. Um, and we decided let's write a note to John addressed from <laughs> Mandy Wolf. And so we wrote this note. We wrote as, as carefully as we could to make it look like a girl's handwriting. We wrote in purple. We took this piece of paper uh, and wrote John, something like, John, I, I like you. I think you're really cute. Um, and then, do you like me? And of course, we put at the bottom, circle one, yes, no. And of course, you have to include the the maybe is on there. Yes, no, or maybe. Circle one. And we wrote this note. We folded it up. We put like a little heart sticker on it. And then we slid it into John's locker. <laughs> and, and we didn't want to in any way be associated with the letter. So we never asked him about it. He never talked about it. Still to this day, I, I just imagine in my head the situation of John <laughs> circling yes, of course, and then giving this note back to Mandy. And she's like... <laughs> What's this? I don't know. I, I just, it was horror. I mean, it was a made up thing. And so, um, I mean, in some ways it was like, and, and we justified it in our head as little middle schoolers, we justified it and said, well, he's going to do this note and then finally he will talk to her. So at least we're putting them together. And so that's how we justified it in our heads of how, <laughs> it was mean. It was a very devious thing to do. But um, we did that. And and so the question is, how do we know that the Bible's not just made up? That someone in history um, was devious enough to write things down and make people believe them? Or maybe they weren't as devious as me as a little middle schooler, but maybe they just thought, this is, this is good stuff. I'm going to write it down and make a religion out of this. If people follow it, that's good because this is a good thing. It helps people with their morals and stuff. So how do we know the Bible's not just made up? And I have a few proofs. In some ways, this is going to be review, uh, but a more in-depth review, because I talked about this um, about a month, maybe two months ago, about how we know the Bible is wh- what it says it is. It's the Word of God. It is the way in which we, the best way in which we know um, who God is and the truths of, of who God is and what He does. And So, proof number one. And this is one of my favorite proofs. You, maybe you've heard me say this proof before, but... Imagine the authors of the Bible. We have, at least by name, 40-plus authors. There's, we have by name 40 authors of the Bible, like Luke and, and John, um, et cetera, et cetera, wrote books of the Bible. But there there's, has to be a lot more than that because the Bible, I mean, the psalm, all the psalms weren't written by just David. There's lots of authors of the psalms. So we do know that at least 40-plus authors wrote the books of the Bible. And so can you imagine taking 40 people, from all different walks of life. The authors of the Bible were from all different types of, of life. Extreme poverty to extreme wealth. Some of them, some of the Bible authors were kings. Some of them were poor and homeless. Some of them were statesmen. Some of them were fishermen. Some of them were poets. Some of them were physicians. All f- so take 40 random people. Have them talk about religion. These 40 different people come from three different continents. Asia, Africa, and Europe. There's three different languages of the Bible. Of course, the New Testament written originally in Greek, Old Testament written originally in Hebrew with some sections Aramaic. So three languages. Um, take these people, spread them out over 2,000 years of history. So you have all these random people, 40 plus authors. Have them write about religion. What would you get? 
you would get 40 different responses. But instead, the books of the Bible, all 66 of the books of the Bible, have one continuous message. In one part of the Bible, it doesn't say God is a three-headed cow that lives on the top of uh, Mount Olympus with the other titans. And then another spot in Scripture says, oh no, uh, God is actually one God, or it does say that God is actually one God, and he sent his son Jesus, and they are one. And, and so it, says, it doesn't say that. And then it adds on, oh God, well, whatever you want to believe is, is fine with you. No, the, the Bible is one continuous single message despite all the different authors from the different walks of life, despite it being spread out over 2,000 plus years of history, despite all those things, it's one message that God has revealed to the different authors, and they wrote it, and we've compiled it. It's called the canon. It means the rule of what is, uh, it's been compiled into these books, these 66 that we now have today. Other proofs for the Bible, if you're taking notes, that, uh, proof one is that it's one continuous message despite the different authors. Proof number two could be that it has historical and archaeological evidences. It wasn't just made up one day. Someone didn't just sit down and make up a bunch of stuff. That, but it talks about places like Jerusalem. Can you go to Jerusalem today? Yeah, you can go there I mean, if you want. You, it talks about places like Bethlehem. Can you go and look at Go to Bethlehem and, and see what the city was like. Can you find ancient artifacts of cities and towns and, and things that the Bible talks about? Yes. In fact, the this, this, this statement is, the Bible has never been disproven by any archaeological finding. And that's, that's a huge statement because um, our friends, uh, the Mormons, and I, I used to live in Utah, so I have a lot of literal Mormon friends, um, believe in a book that came from Joseph Smith that were written on golden plates. He translated them. Uh, supposedly a few people saw the plates, but then they disappeared. Um, he had, the Book of Mormon is a story of the lost tribe of Israel here, like in the continental United States. So the United States, it's about 600 to 400-ish BC. It's the book, when is the Book of Mormon? Was, is the stories in the Book of Mormon were written about. And it was happened here in the continental United States. The problem with their archaeology is that it talks about towns and two million people dying at one time and these big buildings and town, etc., etc. We can't find any archaeological evidence of any of these cities, of of two million people dying. You know, there'd be a pile of bones somewhere. Um, We can't, there's no archaeological evidence. There, in fact, there, the, the Book of Mormon talks about horses being in the continental United States around 400 BC. And I learned in fourth grade that horses didn't live here. Horses came over with the Spanish in like the 1400s. And so the, when, you're, when I was ta- I've talked to Mormons, I've asked them questions like, you know, if, the, if there were really cities here, why can't we find archaeology? If you're saying that horses were here and there's no bones of horses, and we know that the Spanish brought over the horses, why does the Book of Mormon talk about horses? And, the, and, there, and his response when I asked a Mormon uh, was, well, we just haven't found it yet. There's no archaeology that's proved it yet. We're still looking. It's like, man, that's, I mean, that takes a lot of faith to believe that the, Joseph Smith wrote and translated literally these plates that say that there was places here, but we can't find any of the archaeological structures. That takes a lot of faith. Too much, in my opinion. But that's what it is. Um, so the Bible, proof number two, the archaeological and historical evidence that the Bible is true. Finally, one of my f- favorite proofs, the third proof, is that the Bible um, has prophecies in it. And I get especially excited when I look at the Old Testament 
much older than the New Testament, written hundreds or thousands, depending upon the book, hundreds of thousands of years before Jesus came. And yet you could read the Old Testament and find passages and verses talking about the coming Christ, the coming Messiah. Facts like um, the coming Messiah will be born of a virgin, will be born in Bethlehem, will be of the seed of David, of the seed of the tribe of Judah and Jesse and David. And so all these things are talking about Jesus. Jesus came and he, wa- he fulfilled all of these scriptures that he would die, that he would suffer for the sins of the world. There's verses in the Old Testament written hundreds, if not thousands of years before Jesus came that, that Jesus fulfilled. That excites me. Does that excite you? Yeah, I mean, it really does. It says, yeah, the Bible is true. We're not just blindly putting our faith into a book, but there's evidences, there's reasons, there's proofs as to why the Bible is true. And finally, the, the last one, uh, is, is experience. We have all, um, I, I don't want to just bluntly say that, blindly say that, but I know that I have read the Bible before and experienced something, experienced knowing that this is true. This is awesome. God just spoke to me. God whispered to me through reading this passage. Has anyone else ever experienced that? Reading the Bible and feeling, gosh, this is true. This is amazing. God, you are speaking to me right now. So the fourth, the fourth proof, and there's many more, the fourth proof that I want to mention today is that the Bible speaks to us as believers, as Christians, even as non-Christians have read the book. And, and wow, this is true. It is speaking to me, this message. Wow, it's awesome. And so the book of the Bible, the books in the Bible are true. We believe that they are true. Let's, let's talk about the statement. In your notes is, is the, literally the statement in quotation marks. And the statement is something that I've said before. The statement is uh, about the Bible and why we must do hermeneutics and exegesis. And I'll explain those two words in a second. But do you know the statement? If you know it, say it out loud. You've heard me say it before. As soon as I start saying it, you'll be like, oh, I know what he's going to say. The statement about the Bible is the Bible is not written to us it's written for us. Have you heard that me say that before? If you've been to Sunday school like a couple other times, you, you may have heard me say that. Because as we study the Bible, we have to realize that the Bible is not written to us, but it's written for us. And if that's the first time you're hearing that statement, you're like, whoa, that's, that's bold. What, what did he just say? What kind of heresy is going on in the middle of Sunday school? The Bible's not written to us? What? Well, the Bible's not written to us, but it's written for us. It's written, for instance, the, the passage we read today is literally Paul writing to Timothy. In fact, later on in that passage, um, actually this, yeah, later on in chapter 4 of, of 2 Timothy, Paul says to Timothy, um, when you see me again, bring my cloak and my scrolls. And so if you're reading this, and you're just like reading the Bible, like, God give me truth, God give me truth, and you read, Timothy, bring my jacket I left it in Troas, you'd be like, oh, that's good. Yes, yes, God. Bring, bring my coat, because I left it in Troas. <laughs> what? No. Pa- Paul is literally saying, Timothy, bring my coat. I, I left it in Troas. Bring my books. I, I need my books. I got some scrolls. Bring them next time you see me. It's, it's a correspondence. It's a letter from one person to the other. It's like, yes, God, bring my coat from Troas. It's like, What? I don't want to limit God. I mean, if you left a coat in Troas, uh, get it, whatever. Um, but it's, it's literally, the, the Bible's not written to us. For instance, the book of Second Timothy is written to 
Timothy. But we have to understand that, that it's not written to us, but it is written for us. We can know. I mean, I was just thinking about that passage, you know, bring my letters or bring my, my scrolls, bring my books. Next time you see me, I was just encouraged like, man, Paul was no idiot. In the ancient culture, no one owned books. Hardly anyone could even read. Books were ex- so expensive that it took like someone's lifetime to copy a book. And, to, and it, was, it was worth you know, literally, you know, in some ways, I want to be rude, but it's, a book was worth like someone's life back then. It was worth, you know, it was valuable. And Paul has many of them. Paul has scrolls. It says a lot about who Paul was and his education, etc. So anyways, I was encouraged by that. But I realized that it's not written to me. It's written for me. And as we study someone else's letter from Paul to Timothy, we're studying just that, a correspondence. But it speaks to us. We can lo- know it. We can grow from that. And so there's two words that I want to tell you. Um, hermeneutics and exegesis. And these are important words to us as Christians. I'll just give you the, de- the definitions first, and then we'll go into what they mean and, and, and etc. Hermeneutics, if you're taking notes, is just quite simply what it means. Bare bones definition. Hermeneutics. What it means. So you're doing hermeneutics when you're looking at a passage. You're like, yeah, what does this mean? How, do, how, how does this apply to me? You're doing hermeneutics, what it means. Exegesis literally means what it says, what it says. So if you're, if you're reading a verse and you're like, man, I don't understand what this word means. What, is, what does this mean? What's script, you know, scripture? What, all scripture is God breathed. What's God breathed? And then what's he referring to? What kind of scripture is he referring to? You're doing exegesis. You're talking about what it says. And you're reading it again. Maybe you're looking at different translations. And these are really important things to do. To not just open up the Bible blindly and start reading without any context for what is actually happening. Did you know that the first book of the Bible that I read as a, as a, as a baby Christian, as a noob Christian, um, I, I read the book, usually like you read the book of John. You're like, what? I'm, I'm a brand new Christian. I just got saved. What book should I read? You, just, you almost always tell them John or you tell them Romans, right? I mean, how many of you read, the first book of the Bible you ever read was John? Nobody? Okay, I see a few hands. <laughs> You're just shy. Um, so you, you read easier books. You read books about Jesus. You read New Testament books. The first book of the Bible that I read all the way through was Ecclesiastes. I mean, talk about like probably the weirdest book you can pick. Um, probably the most confusing book, because if you know the context of Ecclesiastes, you know that it's literally written by a man that was going through uh, a midlife crisis, a man in, middle, in, in the middle of his life, literally going through a midlife crisis, and he asks questions like, what is the meaning of life? And so you're reading scripture, the book of Ecclesiastes, and he's going and saying, My, life is meaningless. Like, what's that? That's the scripture? Mm, meditate on that. Life is meaningless. I mean, it's a hard book to read. It's a hard book to understand. You have to understand that the context is Solomon writing during a very rough time of his life, but being very honest with God and, and being almost mad at God and saying, life is meaningless. And I've, I've gathered all this wealth and Solomon had all these, this wealth and fame, and yet it's all meaningless. He's coming to a very sad realization for his own life. But it's in, it's in our book. It's in, it's in the Bible. It's scripture. And so for for me, reading Ecclesiastes was potentially one of the best things that could have happened because uh, I read it because my friend, I said, you know, what should I, how do I start reading the Bible? And my friend, his name is Bo, said, well, I'm reading Ecclesiastes. And I said, well, I'm going to read Ecclesiastes. And so me and Bo read, he's been a Christian his whole life. He was really strong in the faith. He, in some ways, led me to Christ and was part of my conversion. And as I read the book of Ecclesiastes, 
book of Ecclesiastes really is a hard book to understand. I had tons of questions. What is this all about? What does this mean? I don't understand it. I would write the questions down. Sometimes I didn't have a piece of paper, or I knew I wouldn't have a piece of paper at lunch time back in high school, so I'd write it on my hand. Like, what's the deal with this passage? And then I would come to lunch, and me and my friend Bo would talk about the scriptures for all of the lunch period. And so in some ways, Ecclesiastes was the best book I could have read because it was so confusing to me. And I had all these questions I had to learn about, oh, I need to interpret, I need to learn who the author is and why he was writing during this hard time of his life. And so I did, from as a very early Christian, as a noob Christian, I was doing exegesis and hermeneutics just out of habit of trying to figure out this book of Ecclesiastes. So let's look at these two words. Hermeneutics comes from the Greek word uh, for interpreter. In fact, hermeneutics, um, the Greek, the sim- there's a similar Greek word of a Greek god named after this idea of Hermes, the Greek god with the wings on his head and the wings on his shoes. He was the messenger god. He wouldn't just like come down from heaven. And the, this, so this is like Greek god, Greek mythology stuff. He, he wouldn't just come down with a message and like hand a piece of paper, but he would come down and there's stories of him telling what's going on with the gods, him, him interpreting and making sure people understood the message from the gods. And so this Greek word has to do with the Greek god of Hermes that coming, coming down, making us understand um, this idea that uh, he was, Hermes was the role of an interpreter, that we also need to interpret scripture. And don't get, don't confu- I don't want to confuse you with Greek mythology. The word itself doesn't have Greek mythological origins. It's just a similar word for hermeneutics and Hermes. So this idea of interpreting, really, what is God doing with this verse and in, in this passage? God speaking to you through this passage, you're doing hermeneutics. The next one is exegesis, what it says and exegesis is, is when you do technical work, when you look at, when you maybe read the passage. For some of you, I know that you're at a level in your faith, you've been a Christian a while, and you are really excited to do Greek and Hebrew studies. Maybe you have a study Bible. Maybe you, you know, look at, you're reading a passage. I don't know what this means. I wonder what the Greek says. Maybe you go to the internet. Maybe you go to a book and find the Greek and the Hebrew passage, and, and you find out, oh, it has this meaning. I know Brady Boyd and his messages. I love it that he, he brings the Greek and Hebrew to life and says, you know, this word says this, and it, it adds to the translation and our interpretation if we know that in Greek it meant this. And so we're doing exegesis when we do Greek and Hebrew studies. We're doing exegesis when we read the passage again and again to understand it. And we're doing exegesis when we maybe, I know a lot of us do this, when we go to another translation of the Bible and read it in another translation and compare what is being said in the two different translations. So I want to take a break from talking for just a second and ask you all a question. What translation of the Bible, is, assuming you all speak English, um, uh, what English translation of the Bible is your favorite translation and why? And feel free to just like pick one translation and be like, I am an NASB guy or I am an NIV only guy or I am a King James Version only girl. Um, feel free to like get excited about your favorite version. Talk about it at your table and then we'll kind of talk about it in big groups, uh, in the big group and go over different translations and how, how they are different. So you got it? Pick a translation that's your favorite. Chit chat about it. Ready, get set. Go.
I'll give you like 60 seconds to wrap up. Let's talk about it um, with everyone. If you are, uh, if you really like a, a particular translation, I think we have dudes with microphones. Yeah, Joel has one. Uh, is that the only? Oh, Matt has one back there. Get their attention and then just simply say your favorite translation and maybe why. Bruce, yes, thanks for starting us off. Um, I'm Bruce. not partial uh, as far as like, I don't like hate all other translations or anything like that. <laughs> I've read NIV, I've read all of them. But uh, ESV is, it's kind of Anybody else ESV fan? I yeah, really, really like it. Um, if you haven't seen it yet, the NASB used to be, like, as I understand it, the most, like, thought for thought and word for word, uh-huh. like, perfect translation. And the ESV is, like, the same thing, but you can understand it grammar. So it's, as it's, far as it's grammar got goes. the best of everything. So you're an ESV guy. It's, it's my thought. Thanks, but I read NIV, too. I'm not partial. <laughs> All right. Who else? Anybody? I mean, there's got to be other. Yeah, go ahead. The mic guy's allowed. Hey, uh, okay. I'm Joel. Hi, Joel. But, um, <laughs> hi. Um, so uh, I'm, I'm more of a fan of there's wisdom in a multitude of counselors. And Ooh. so I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to look at a bunch of different translations to get the, the best idea of what's going on in a passage. Yeah, that's good. In fact, my friend Matt, where I was walking by and Matt was reading his Bible and he has a Bible that's called a parallel Bible. Raise your hand if you have a parallel Bible. A parallel Bible has, his translation had NASB and the Amplified side by side. So if he's ever like, oh, I wonder how the NASB says it, it's literally, it's right there. It's on the page. So... Thank you for that thought. Any other thoughts? Anybody a fan of NIV? Yeah, Matthew's got one. And then, and, and then yeah. The nearly inflammable version. I'm totally going to agree with Joel on this one. I have like three favorite versions, and that's the message, the NIV, and the New King James version. Message, NIV, and the King James. So you I mean, like 
If you do a Devo, do you have all three Bibles um, around? Sometimes. Usually when I'm going through, if I don't... Like, uh, the NIV I like because it's easy to read, but uh, um, because it is a paraphrase, sometimes things are translated differently from the actual translation that... From a word-for-word so, word translation. From a word-to-word word translation that okay. sometimes changes the meaning. So that's why I like the New King James Version, because that's far more accurate in that case. And occasionally I come across a passage that I don't understand in either version, so I was just like, okay, message. What do you How many of you like the message? <laughs> the message, we'll talk about what a paraphrase in a, is in a second, but that's what the message is. Thank you. And then I think the last one is Chris. Do you have anybody? Just Joel's doing all the work. I think Chris... Yeah. There you are. Hi, I'm Chris. Uh, what up, Chris? I like the uh, NIV, <clears throat> ESV, and New King James. NIV, ESV, and New King James. Yeah. It's good. <laughs> it's good. Thanks for sharing. John Christ. Yeah, I just had something that sounded like a contradiction. Um, you had mentioned, <laughs> you mentioned that books were really valuable. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it took a long time. I don't understand why. Paul just left his in Troas. <laughs> really good question. <laughs> now, why would Paul just leave his book somewhere? It's like, man, you got to bring him along. I imagine if they, they, like, they weren't like little novels; they were like scrolls, and you had to like have a whole backpack and a horse just to. <laughs> Maybe my he had friend to John leave Chris quickly. switching it up. All right. I th- thank you if you shared. Thank you so much. Let's look very quickly at formal, uh, the, the difference between formal equivalence, dynamic equivalence, and then a paraphrase. These, these words are in your notes. These are different types of translations. And I'm just going to very quickly give you a bunch of information about translations and why pe- different people have different translations. And what's the deal? Is like one translation from the devil and another translation from God. What's the deal? So I'm going to give you the deal. Um, and so this is a very, a very heady Sunday school kind of message. Come to Sunday school, get these heady kind of messages every once in a while. But I don't know where else you would get them. And so hopefully this information is very valuable for you. But basically there's three types of translations. When, when you're translating from another language, for instance, the Bible, Greek, and Hebrew, into English, you, tra- you translate them with different ideas, different I- I- ideologies of what you want your translation to be like. And the first one is, uh, on your notes, the formal equivalence. And these are um, many of the translations that you mentioned that are very word for word. So if you're taking notes, go say word for word for formal equivalence. And this type of translation, which takes the greatest effort to make, to preserve the meaning of individual words and phrases to the original without regard for its understandability to modern readers. For instance, the examples of formal equivalence are ESV, English Standard Version. Another example would be the King James Version or the New King James Version is a formal equivalent to the, to the words, uh, the original words as they appeared in the manuscripts. Um, what is another? Uh, the NASB is often considered, you know, by some translation snobs to be the best as far as formal equivalence. And the NASB is a post-high school level reading. And so if you, so the reading level of the NASB 
is post-high school. It's a, it's a hard translation to read. There's big words. The words are often kind of jumbled to keep more of a Greek or a Hebrew wording of the order of the words. And it's, it's, not, it's not in some ways, I, I, I don't know that I would exaggerate it like this, but in some ways it's not as user-friendly as other verses. So that's formal equivalence, very word for word. Often people will say, yeah, if I'm you know, really doing an in-depth study, or if I'm writing a Bible paper for my school, I will use NASB because it's very exact. It's very word for word. Um, um, the King James also falls into this group. Sometimes people say the King James Version is the best. It's the only version. And sometimes their argument is um, it's, it's the version that everybody uses. But that argument is becoming less and less popular because actually, is, according to popularity, the NIV is the most popular English version in the world as far as English versions go. But anyways, um, so King James would be in there. The New King James would be in there. ESV, NASB. There's probably others as well, seeing as though there's hundreds of English translations of the Bible. But those are the ones that are the most popular, that at least I know about. The next type of, of translation is called a dynamic equivalent. And I first learned about the word dynamic when I was learning how to rock climb. Anybody else rock climber in here? see those hands. Thank you. Um, I, I learned how to rock climb quite a few years ago, and there's two different types of ropes. If you go to buy a rope at REI or somewhere, they will ask you if you want a static rope or a dynamic rope. And if you don't know what that means, you probably shouldn't be climbing. Um, <laughs> I mean, you could go with somebody else to climb, but if you're going to be lead climbing, you need to know what different types of ropes. Because a static rope is a, is a rope that doesn't stretch at all. No stretching. A dynamic rope will stretch quite a bit. And so if you're lead climbing, which means you climb above your last bolt, and you fall, let's say you fall five feet from your last bolt, you will fall down and you will have fell 10 feet. Now, if you fall 10 feet on a climbing rope, is it potentially life-threatening? Well, potentially it's life-threatening, but it's really, I mean, in the grand scheme of things, it's not that big of a deal. Lead climbers fall five feet, you know, five feet past their bolt. Maybe not all the time, but... It's fine. I mean, you, you fall when you're climbing, but you have the rope to catch you, and you fall past your bolt, and, and the dynamic rope stretches a little bit. So as you fall, you stretch, and it's like a slow, and you just kind of, it's not like this jarring, I fell, it's more like a, and so if you're climbing with the static rope, though, so, so that was the dynamic rope, the stretchiest kind of rope. If you're climbing with a static rope, no give, no stretch whatsoever, and you climb five feet above your bolt, and then you fall, that means you would have fell 10 feet and come to a screeching halt, you can die. It can jar, it could like, give you whiplash. You could come to like such a, that your head hits the rock. Because <laughs> you're on a hot, it's just no give whatsoever. You fell 10 feet and just hit a, a screeching stop. It's very dangerous. So the, the good about the dynamic rope is that it stretches. The good with the translation is that it, uh, it's, it, it stretches according to... Is, you'd ask the question, is this really how someone would say it if they were saying what's being uh, written in the Bible? Or is this just nonsensical, you know, very static word-for-word translation of, of another text. So in some ways, you know, sometimes translation snobs are like, oh, the NASB is the only translation because it is the, uh, the most accurate word-for-word translation. And in some ways, it's like, well, 
You're right, but what about the dynamic? What about, you know, how, how a language, how poetry, for instance, in the Psalms is supposed to flow? How, when you're writing a letter, you're not just like, bah, 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 but a letter flows. Your ideas flow together. And so the, the good about a dyna- dynamic translation is that it's easier to read. For example, the NIV is kind of a special translation because the NIV is somewhere in between a dynamic are a dynamic and a formal equivalent. In, in some ways, it uses both. It uses very word-for-word um, translation um, tools, and it is also dynamic. It's somewhere in the middle. So the NIV, for example, is, is not a post-high school reading level. It's a middle school reading level, which makes it a whole bunch easier for people that don't read very well, for people that need extra help. And it's like, man, take out some of these bigger words and make them words that I would actually use. Common, spoken English. And so the NIV, uh, borderline d- dynamic and formal equivalent, uh, it's, it's, it's translated phrase for phrase, not paraphrase. That's something else. But it's translated idea per idea, thought for thought. It's dynamic. It flows. It's much easier to read than, say, an NASB, which is uh, a formal equivalence. And so other dynamic equivalent translations would be, of course, the TNIV, which is a modern-day adaptation of the NIV, which kind of gender-inclusively is correct, uh, PC correct, uh, when it comes to like, like if it says, like the passage we read today, so that the man of God may understand it would, the, the TNIV would say that the man or woman or that the person may understand because that's what was meant by the original authors when they were writing to everybody. Anyways, uh, the, the NRSV would be a good dynamic equation. The, um, the New Living, it's, it's gaining a lot of po- popularity. Any new, li- new Living fans? Yep, see that hand. Uh, this would also be like the NIV, very uh, much easier to read. It is gender inclusive. It is a translation that is in the modern English, like the NIV. It is the dynamic equivalent. So, those are the two main types of translations. And then there's something called the paraphrase, which are f- like are the translation the message would fall into. This is where, and the message is so unique because the message, Eugene Peterson, the author of the translation, the paraphrase of the Bible, actually looked at the Greek and Hebrew and translated the message from the Greek and Hebrew. He didn't just look at another English translation, like, for example, the Living Translation, not to be confused with the New Living Translation, but the Living Translation is a paraphrase from the American Standard Version. So someone was reading English and translating into English. The message to me is, is cooler because it's, at least it's from the original text to very modern day English. A way in which we would just normally talk. Like, what's up, dude? That would be in there. I mean, it's not that informal, but it's like that. It'd be like the way you would talk. And so it's very, very easy to understand. It's, it's uh, somewhere between elementary to um, middle school reading level. It's much easier to read than even the NIV. But sometimes you have to realize, if, you, if your translation is the message, you have to realize what it is. I would say it's fine. It's, oh yeah, Re- you know, it's, it's not like the message is from Satan. I know when it first came out, people were like that. People were like, oh, it's a paraphrase. Don't ever read a paraphrase. But there's reasons to read it. There's reasons, if, you know, if you're handing it to a non-Christian, it might be the best thing. If you're handing it to a middle schooler, it might be the best thing because then they could read it and understand it. So that's kind of the gist of the translations. I know it's a very kind of a heady message 
um, today about the different translations. And I, but I wanted to inspire us for next week because, you know, sometimes I think people just say things like, man, I just did my Devo today. And it was like I was feasting off of the presence of the Lord in the chambers of heaven. And you're like, sweet. What does that mean, though? Like, Glenn Packiam has this really good, a good kind of story analogy. He says, you know, we go into Christian bookstores and we see paintings with all these, you know, nice verses on them, like uh, John 3.16, or the Lord is my shepherd, or these little statues and figurines of, I have plans for you, says the Lord, or rise up on wings as eagles, or I could do all things through Christ who strength, strengthens me, or verses like, seek thee the kingdom of heaven first, and all else will be added unto thee. And like this nice poetic uh, verses and paintings and little statues and figurines and we, you know, we, we put these verses and we tattoo them on our bodies and cool stuff like that. And if you think, oh, well, that's what reading the Bible is all about, feasting from the presence of God in the chambers of heaven, you will pick up the Bible and look at it and read, you know, page after page before you come to like, you know, a verse that you want to make a plaque out of. The, the, the Bible isn't just a bunch of like plaque verses, the really nice la-di-da verses. The, the Bible is stories. The Bible is um, letters. The Bible's history. The Bible is so many different types of writing that it requires hermeneutics and exegesis to get the knowledge of God from the book. And I just want to end with this idea that it kind of goes back to the, the first verse that we read today, that all scripture is God-breathed. And the breathing uh, that, that just that idea of the breathing, God breathing on Scripture is fascinating to me. It reminds me of God breathing into human body, Adam's body, to make it alive, to give him the image of God. This idea in the Hebrew is that spirit and breath and, and life are all kind of similar themes. That when, we, that when God breathes on something, it's the way in which he communicates. And there's this passage in, in 1 Kings 19 where... Elijah, the prophet, is, is told to go wait for the Lord and God is going to speak to them. And the passage is, um, the Lord said to go and, and stand on a mountain in the presence of the Lord because the Lord's about to pass by. And this passage says that a great and powerful wind tore through the mountains and shattered the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. Imagine just like a legitimate earthquake, like, wow, the power of God. No, God wasn't in the earthquake. And then came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And then came the gentle whisper. In verse 13, when Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face, which is just an ancient Jewish way of showing respect to a king or to God. He covered his face and went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. That God's voice, that God's speaking was in this whisper. And I think that's how, as we study the Bible more next week and get into how God speaks to us, it's through a whisper. You know, we're reading a letter from Paul to Timothy, and yet God is speaking to us through whispers. And that's how the Bible works. The Bible is sometimes these beautiful verses that we can make, you know, a crochet into things and put in our bathroom. But not always. The Bible is... <laughs> Sorry. How about that? <laughs> Just pictured a crochet of that verse. The First Corinthians 13 verse is like all, in every Christian's bathroom... 1 Corinthians 13 is there. Think about it. Think about your parents' house. Yep, it's there. Anyways, um, sometimes the Bible's verses like that. Most of the time, the Bible's letters and its history. And God speaks to us through the whispering. Let's pray this morning. God, we do thank you for your word. Would you show us 
Would you awaken us in your spirit, in our spirits to your spirit as you speak to us through the Bible? God, allow it to come alive to us as we read, as we study, as we pick it up and do a morning or an evening devotional or just an afternoon reading of your word. Would you show us, would you whisper to us and show us how it is that you communicate to us, that we can fall more in love with you by reading your word. We can know who you are. You can speak to us by breathing and whispering to us as we read the books of the Bible. God, we're honored that we have this book. Allow us to glorify you with our lives. And everybody said, amen. All right, my friends. Peace out. Meet some more peeps before you leave. Rock on.